Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The Gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as shepherd. Is this theme part of the Gospel's divine Christology? Wayne Baxter, by exploring shepherd imagery in the Hebrew Bible and literature of Second Temple Judaism, answers yes. Tune in as we speak with Wayne Baxter about his recent book, Divine Christology in the Gospel of Matthew. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Wayne Baxter is Professor of New Testament and Greek at Heritage College and Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario, Canada. Wayne, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies. Thanks for having me, Michael. I appreciate the opportunity. So, Wayne, tell us about yourself before we discuss your book. Sure. I guess my origin story, you could call it that perhaps. Um, I'm a Canadian, so please don't hold that against me. Although my uh, hometown is Windsor, and so Windsor is basically a Canadian suburb of Detroit. So I guess I'm more American than Canadian. So if that will help your listeners welcome me more, then that's what I am. I'm American. Um, I didn't grow up uh, in going to an evangelical church or grow up going to church, but I did come to uh, Christ at a young age. I was 12 years old, and my mother sent me to a uh, vacation Bible school, not for me to find religion or anything like that, but uh she knew that her youngest child would fritter away his summer watching TV. And so this was her attempt to get me out of the house. And ironically, I, I found Christ there at this vacation Bible school as a 12-year-old. Um, but I didn't really do anything or growing my faith or anything like that until I hit college. And um, in college, I got involved in some uh, some campus, different campus faith groups, Christian groups. And um, I majored in chemistry. And after I graduated, uh, I became a, um, a research and development chemist, research and development, uh, product development chemist. So I guess you could kind of say that I was a real Christian scientist. And uh, while I was Christian scientisting, uh, God called me. I, I really sensed God was calling me to vocational ministry. And I didn't know exactly what that would look like, but I just really felt deeply that that he was calling me to vocational ministry. So I quit my job and I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield. And uh, that was just a a real blessing. I really enjoyed my time there learning under some really great scholars and theologians. And then when I, uh, so I got my MDiv there. When I finished up, I began pastoring in my hometown of Windsor at a Christian Missionary Alliance church. And I was kind of pastor, et cetera, mostly youth, but I did all kinds of things. And it was really while I was serving there that I uh, got more clarity on where God, where I felt God was ultimately calling me to, and that was to teach in the academy. But he took me the long way around, I guess you could say, because I went from that church to uh, uh, another church in, in Ottawa as a youth pastor there. And then from that church, um, I began PhD studies at McMaster University, which is um, uh, one of Canada's, if not the top uh, research university in Canada. So I was in the Department of Religious Studies there, 
Uh, my major was early Christianity. My minor was early Judaism. My PhD supervisor was Anders Renison. And uh, my focus was the shepherd metaphor in the Gospel of Matthew. So then uh, I graduated 2008. And come to find out, it's hard to get a tenure track job. <laughs> they warned me, but I didn't listen. And so uh, after a couple of years of adjuncting in local uh, colleges, um, that kind of dried up. So I returned to pastoring in the greater Toronto area. And I pastored for three years um, at a Baptist church. And then uh, the spot opened up here uh, at Heritage College and Seminary in the other Cambridge, so not Cambridge Mass or Cambridge UK, but Cambridge Ontario. Um, and I've been here teaching New Testament and Greek for a little over 10 years and I'm just really enjoying uh, this ministry that uh, I have here. So that's basically me in, uh, in a bit of a nutshell. Now, the title of your book is Divine Shepherd Christology in the Gospel of Matthew. Part of your aim is to show that Matthew's shepherding imagery presents a high Christology. Could you give us a little background context on this point? Sure. Uh, so for much of New Testament scholarship, the history of scholarship, commentators, particularly those commentators of a uh, Christian persuasion, held to belief that New Test the New Testament texts teach that Jesus is God, which is a high Christology. Jesus is, is God. Um, but once the Enlightenment rolled around, basically more and more scholars rejected this view, this historic position, and they started arguing for a low Christology, right, that Jesus is someone or something other than uh, than God, the God of Israel. Well, back in 2014, a well-known scholar, Bart Ehrman uh, at UNC, he, he brought this scholarly debate into the mainstream with his book, How Jesus Became God, essentially arguing that Jesus, neither Jesus nor his earliest followers believed that Jesus was God, and that it was only after centuries of church history and church dogma that Jesus later followers, like 300 years later, believed and taught that Jesus was God. Well, a number of conservative scholars uh, wrote specifically against Bart Ehrman's low Christology view, um, most specifically the edited volume, which also came out in 2014 uh, by Mike Bird, How God Became Jesus. And there's a variety of ways to argue for high Christology. Um, there's Jesus devotion, which is Larry Hurtado, that the, 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 his first followers worshipped him. There's divine identity, which is uh, Richard Balcom, and there's other ways of arguing it. In my book, uh, Divine Christology uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, it examines Matthew's shepherd Christology, and it shows how Matthew's unique use of the shepherd metaphor reveals that Matthew believed that Jesus was the God of Israel. Before turning to Matthew's Gospel, Give us some insight on the shepherd metaphor as it's found in the Hebrew Bible. No, I'm, no, I'm kidding, of course. Uh, so the Hebrew Bible, it's replete with metaphors for God, right? God is, is likened to a rock, to a storm, to fire in Deuteronomy 4, to a stronghold in times of trouble, a refuge. But arguably the most important and certainly the most recurring metaphor for God is that of shepherd. And that's not really too surprising because ancient Israel was a very agrarian society, so shepherds and shepherding was a very familiar point of reference. Well, the Hebrew Bible depicts God as the ideal shepherd. And as the ideal shepherd, God offers exemplary care and provision and protection, 
of his flock. And, and even when he's not explicitly being called shepherd, like there are texts that explicitly call God shepherd, like perhaps um, that familiar text, most famously uh, Psalm 23, one, the Lord is my shepherd. But even when he's not explicitly being called shepherd, God is likened frequently to a shepherd in other ways, like the activities that he performs for his people are shepherding activities, pasturing and, and gathering together uh, the lost. Uh, and how he performs those duties are, are likened to how shepherds perform their duties. As well, uh, the Hebrew Bible uses the shepherd metaphor to symbolize the relationship between uh, Israel's earthly leaders, the shepherds like Moses and David and others, um, and the general populace, which would be the sheep. Now, a few things characterize the um, Hebrew Bible's appropriation of the shepherd metaphor. Let me just give you four. Uh, the specific activity uh, that most closely corresponds to the to shepherding is ruling, right? So the shepherd rules over the sheep. Uh, there's a there's pastoral imagery, and this so this ruling is depicted in terms of activities that are befitting literal shepherds and the shepherding vocation. Uh, the shepherd metaphor is associated with overtones of Jewish national restoration, right? In other words, it expresses concern for the political and or spiritual welfare of Israel. And uh, when the metaphor is applied to God, God as shepherd saves his flock. And in the, in the Hebrew Bible, only God as shepherd is said to save the flock. You have other shepherds, David and Moses and kings and prophets who are likened to shepherds, but none of them ever save the flock. Only God, Adonai, as shepherd saves the flock. So it's kind of reserved for Adonai. The idea of saving and shepherding is reserved for God in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so that's basically how it break down the use of the uh, shepherd metaphor in the Hebrew Bible. In your Gospel of Matthew section, you bring out a variety of motifs related to the shepherd metaphor employed by Matthew. Would you rehearse some of those with us? Sure, I'd, I'd, I'd love to do that, Michael. And probably a good place to start would be the beginning, right? So the introduction of Matthew's gospel, which Matthew scholars um, define as Matthew's one and Matthew chapters one and two. So Matthew opens with the genealogy, and this genealogy presents Jesus as the son of David, right? The true heir to great David's throne, right? Jesus is great David's even greater son. And so the genealogy emphasizes uh, Jesus' Davidic ancestry, right? And that Jesus is that David to whom the prophets of yore announced uh, would come and take his rightful place upon Israel's throne. So having announced to his audience that Jesus is uh, the true heir to the throne of Israel, to David's throne, Matthew then describes how people reacted to the news of Jesus' birth. And it's it's here in the account of the Magi in uh, Matthew 2, 1 to 12, where Matthew introduces his shepherd motif. Uh, the story of the Magi offers an implicit contrast between Herod the king, as he's called in 2, 1, uh, and Jesus the newborn king, as he's called in 2, 2, and of course, Jesus uh, being the son of David the king, Matthew 1, 6. So for Matthew, uh, Israel's current king, Herod, rules illegitimately. Right? He's Edomian, uh, which means he's not from David's line, which means he cannot be the heir to David's throne. Uh, he's culturally compromised. Josephus in his writings talk about that. 
and he rules with excessive cruelty, which Josephus talks about, but even the rest of Matthew 2 shows that Herod rules with cruelty. Jesus, in contrast to Herod, Jesus is descended from David, right? That's the genealogy. So he's Davidic in his lineage. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit, right? That's Matthew 1, 18 and 20. He's the Christ. That's what he's called, Matthew 1, 1, Matthew 2, 4. And God has appointed Jesus to rule over Israel, just as the prophets predicted. And Matthew cites those prophets uh, in 2, 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So this scripture, quote, it's a mixed citation. And Matthew often does mixed citations, blended citations. And so this one here, the first part is from Micah 5.2 or Micah 5.1 in the Hebrew Bible, the Masoretic text. Um, and the second part, who will shepherd my people Israel, is an implicit citation of 2 Samuel 5.2. So by appending 2 Samuel 5.2 with its term shepherd onto the Micah 5 quote, Matthew produces a number of of uh, interrelated effects. He characterizes uh, Jesus' kingly reign of Israel as that of a shepherd, right? So Jesus is the shepherd king. And he, he reemphasizes Davidic Christology, like God spoke those words, you'll shepherd my people Israel, directly to David at David's coronation. So now he applies them to Jesus, right? So Jesus is not just the shepherd king, but he's the Davidic shepherd king. And he, he identifies, Matthew does, the, the recipients of Jesus shepherding as, peop, as Israel, God's people Israel. And then also, through the close uh, linguistic echo between Matthew 2, 6b, he will shepherd my people Israel, and the programmatic statement of 121, that he will save his people from their sins, Matthew connects Jesus' shepherding of Israel with his saving of Israel. Thus, insofar as Jesus shepherds Israel, he saves them from their afflictions. Now, uh, one of the, one of the uh, important yet often overlooked ways that Jesus shepherds or saves Israel, uh, it's on full display in what has been called the miracle chapters of Matthew 8 and 9, right? The the Sermon on the Mount and the, the Miracle Chapters, Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Miracle Chapters, um, chapters 8 and 9, offer a window into Jesus' mission into Israel. Right? Matthew has this wonderful inclusio, these summary statements in 423 and 935, and so those bookends, those summary statements, that inclusio groups these passages together. The Sermon on the Mount and the Miracle Chapters, they're, they're grouped together. And uh, the shepherd motif appears at the tail end in Matthew 9, 36, which reads, when he saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And this saying, because it comes at the, at the tail end of the miracle chapters, it serves uh, as a way of characterizing Jesus' activity uh, in Israel described by the miracle chapters. And so Jesus went about doing what Israel's leaders should have been doing, but they weren't doing. So the miracle chapters depict Jesus as a shepherd who acts with divine authority, right? After he was teaching, uh, the multitude were amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribes. And, and then the healing of the paralytic talks about how they were amazed that, uh, that God has given, uh, one such authority uh, among people, uh, 
as a shepherd, Jesus acts with compassion and mercy, right? And his mercy is on display uh, very explicitly uh, when Jesus heals the two blind men who, who call out for mercy. And of course, he, he grants the mercy by healing them. But Jesus uh, is a shepherd who fulfills scripture through his deeds of healing done in the land of Israel, right? In, in the miracle chapters, of the land of Israel. So uh, he fulfills scripture explicitly in Matthew 8, 17, where uh, Matthew cites Isaiah 53, 4 in relation to Jesus' healings, fulfilling scripture. And then he implicitly cites Ezekiel 34, 5 in Matthew 9, uh, 36, right? In, in that Davidic shepherd in Ezekiel 34, one of the things that he does, one of the activities that he does is he heals, he binds up the wounded, he's a healer. And so in the miracle chapters also, Jesus is a shepherd who is Davidic in his origin, right? In fact, that's what he's called uh, that in Matthew 27 and following that when the blind men call up for healing, they say, Jesus, son of David, they call him the son of David uh, and ask for healing in that way. So well before Jesus self-identifies himself in the passion narrative as the the shepherd of Zechariah 13, who's going to be struck down to save his people from their sins, right in the upper room, he cites Zechariah 13, 7, applies it to himself, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Well before that, Matthew has already begun portraying Jesus as the Davidic shepherd of Ezekiel 34, who saves his people through his deeds of healing. Uh, in developing his shepherd motif, uh, Matthew stands apart from other New Testament writers uh, through his unique appropriation uh, of the shepherd metaphor. Right? For Matthew, uh, the fundamental activity associated with the metaphor is ruling. In other uh, New Testament texts, teaching becomes associated with the metaphor, but for Matthew, it's, it's restricted to, to ruling. Uh, Matthew associates saving with shepherding, right? In no other appropriation in the New Testament uh, does the shepherd um, save, like the earthly shepherd save. And, and again, in the Hebrew Bible, that connection of saving and shepherding is reserved only for Adonai, right? Only for Yahweh. Uh, Matthew also exclusively reserves the term shepherd for Jesus. In the other New Testament texts, shepherd is used for like, congregational leaders and pastors and teachers, that type of thing. Uh, in Matthew, yes, Matthew sends the disciples out. Um, in, in Matthew 10, they function as shepherds. But in fact, it, in terms of actually calling them shepherds, Matthew doesn't do that. He reserves the term shepherd just for Jesus. And uh, Matthew also embeds a geopolitical dimension uh, to Jesus' shepherding of Israel, right? That's the opening chapters of Matthew 1 and 2 in that contrast between Herod um, and Jesus, so it's from these elements uh, in Matthew's shepherd motif, right? The, the connecting of saving and shepherding, uh, the reserving of the term shepherd only for Jesus and associating Jewish national overtones with the metaphor. It's from these um, that we can infer his high Christology that Matthew believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the God of Israel. Profound and exciting work. Thank you. What do you hope readers will take away from your book? Well, hopefully three things, um, and maybe things I haven't even envisioned, but hopefully at least three things. Uh, first, I hope that readers will appreciate the Jewishness of the first gospel, right? It's not just that the evangelist 
was a Jewish Christ believer who used the Old Testament a lot because that's that's Paul. Right? Paul is Jewish, and he uses the Old Testament a lot. But it, it but it's more than that. It's that in many respects, Matthew the evangelist actually thought more like a Jew, like a non Christ believing Jew, than a Christ believer. Uh, I also hope that readers will recognize the importance of the shepherd metaphor uh, in Matthew, but not just in Matthew, but also in the Bible as a whole. I think that in the last 10 to 15 years or so, there's been this move in many churches to jettison the, sh the shepherd as a metaphor for church leadership because it's so foreign to our, our Western context. But I think its prominence in the Bible shows us that rather than jettisoning it, we need to understand it on its own terms and then seek to contextualize it uh, for a Western audience. And then uh, lastly, I hope that the readers will see that high Christology is not something that emerged, you know, three or four centuries after Jesus and after the 12, but rather that high Christology originated with Jesus of Nazareth and with his earliest followers like Matthew. And that's, Hopefully, what readers will take from my uh, from my book. Before we say goodbye, Wayne, can you tell us about any other projects you're working on? Uh, sure. I am um, proofing a book, quite a different kind of book. It's a book on, um, it's with coming out with Lexum in November, December of this year. And it's a book on preaching, specifically uh, how to move from exegesis uh, to exposition, to sermon exposition. Uh, because what I found, we, uh, teaching Greek, but not just teaching Greek, but coming from seminary myself, talking with my friends that I went through the languages with, uh, the languages tend to be taught in kind of isolated fashion from preaching, right? So you learn all this good grammar and syntax, and then when you get tossed out there into the church, you're really not sure how to move from this to this. And what ends up happening is that uh, you use this, but you use it in such a convoluted way that people's eyes gloss over and they don't understand anything because your sermons are way too complex. Um, or what happens is because students don't, they can't make that connection, therefore they don't really see the need for the languages. And so they don't even be, they don't use them, they lose them. And so in this monograph, um, what I'm trying to do is in a step-by-step -step manner, um, take the reader from the study and how they can in step-by-step -step manner uh, use their Greek exegesis. And I do look at Hebrew as well, to a lesser degree, admittedly. Um, take that into and use that to write a, a uh, expositional uh, sermon. So that's the main thing I'm working on. Um, kind of an idea that's out there for, or I'm in the proposal phase for uh, this other book I'm working on uh, in John's gospel in John 10 um, Jesus talks about the other sheep and so I've always thought of the other sheep as Gentiles um, but this past summer when I was working through it I'm like oh you know what I'm not sure the other sheep are actually Gentiles anymore so I'm kind of working through a book proposal to explore uh, the identity of the other sheep in John 10. So those are the two uh, main things I'm working on presently. Wayne, it's been a delight. Thank you for sharing your time and your scholarship with us. Oh, you're so welcome, Michael. Thanks again for inviting me on to your, uh, to your podcast.
Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.